Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. And we're live. I am here with my friend, Dr. Maya Shatrit. Welcome. Uh, thank you. I'm yes. here. And today, um, just finished your put recording and putting together your upcoming event, which we'll talk about at the end of this on mushrooms and psychedelics. And congratulations on that. I know what goes into producing those events. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a, a journey. Yes, I'm sure that's a larger scale than any of the the summit events that I've done. So I I envy and don't envy you at the same time, but I'm sure it was fun, and I'm looking forward to to seeing it and sharing it. And before we get started, I'll introduce Dr. Maya Shutrit is a neurologist, herbalist, urban farmer, and author of the Dirt Cure. She has been featured in the New York Times, the Telegraph, NPR, Sky News, the Dr. Oz Show, and more. She's also the founder of the Terrain Institute, where she teaches terrain medicine, earth-based programs for transformational healing. Dr. Maya works and studies with indigenous communities and healers from around the world and is a lifelong student of ethnobotany, plant healing, and the sacred, which I believe we're going to get into a little bit today. So that's quite the evolution from neurologist MD to ethnobotany, plant healing, and the sacred was... Were plants and plant medicine, plants as medicine and nature as medicine always part of your life? And then you just automatically infused that into medicine, like as an MD, or did that come on after you became a doctor? I've never asked you this. Well, you know, <laughs> I think as a little, I was, no, is the answer. I was definitely not, you know, I didn't have a mom who like gave me remedies and things like that. I had lots of ear infections as a little kid. I had to drink my glass of big glass of milk before bed every night. And I took a lot of Dimetap and a million antibiotics and got tubes in my ears. We were not, you know, as the seventies, like nobody was like in my house was, was talking about any kind of, you know, alternative or holistic or traditional healing. Um, and my dad who came from an indigenous background in Morocco could not have wanted to be less connected with that. Um, like many immigrants, you know, he was much more interested in like, being an American and, you know, fitting in and like nothing that he kind of came from, you know, he came from a, a family where his mom was married at nine years old and had her first baby at 12 and, um, you know, had had 14 or 15 children, 11 of whom survived um, and some really, you know, intense stories about living in refugee camps when they had to like leave and so on and so forth. and really, really a very intense background, which is why I can understand, you know, and understand why someone might want to leave most of that behind. Yeah, absolutely. So wow. I though was an only child, you know, I used to have to entertain myself. So I did lots and lots and lots and lots of reading. And um, so I like kind of initiated myself into a lot of things through my reading. Um, and my home environment was not the happiest. So I had a lot of um, kind of time and escape escapism. Um, and I also used to go and play in 
nature by myself. So I, there was a creek near me and I used to go and make little, what I did not realize at the time, but make little potions and make altars and all kinds of things there, but had no name or no word for that. And, you know, that was kind of considered to be kid stuff by me because nobody I knew was doing anything like that. That was an adult, um, maybe my aunts, you know, but they didn't live near me. So, um, yeah, so I went on, you know, was an English major in college, decided to go to medical school, which is, you know, its own story. And part of how I decided to go to medical school was that I was interested in psychoneuroimmunology after watching the Bill Moyer special. So it was not like a totally foreign idea, right, that there was this call. Um, but what was really- You know, most people, when they're interested in something they see on a TV show, will like buy a book about it, they don't go to medical school. <laughs> 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 write an essay about this and then like they let me into med school who knew so <laughs> so what I then kind of discovered and I think it's funny so like I was going through my training and I went into medicine thinking I wanted to do the psychoneuroimmunology and I was kind of waiting for you know I ended up like you know I trained in pediatrics and I trained in adult and child neurology and all this time over these many 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 years I was kind of like I think in a way somewhere in the back of my mind like waiting to learn this stuff that they're like, yeah, this is this new field of medicine way back when I was in college and watched the Bill Moyer special, psychoneuroimmunology, I thought, okay, I'm going to hit that. And then really, I never hit it. And, um, but somewhere along there, I got pregnant, I got pregnant with my children, you know, I got married, I got pregnant with my children. And um, I started to have kidney stones when I was pregnant. And part of that was just working hours and hours and hours on my feet where you can't, you know, as a resident or a medical student you're not able to like drink when you want to and pee when you want to and all of that kind of stuff um that's you know part of our wonderful <laughs> healing self-care focused medical system yeah i didn't know everything that is it resident is that the term when you're like the the servant of the <laughs> ward yeah. um i didn't know a lot about that until i married a nurse and she would tell me that there would be doctors in the er that would have been there when she got there for her shift on like a certain day who were there when she got there for her shift on the next day and they were just leaving. Yeah. And in that in between, she worked a shift, came home, slept, ate twice, then went back to work. And it's like, why do they do that? She goes, I don't know. That's just what they do. And I'm like, wow, I don't want a doctor in the emergency room to take care of me that's been at work for 20 hours. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so shout out to all the doctors who have been through that. It is no joke. It is an initiatory experience for sure. And I'm now very attached to my sleep, you know, in ways that I don't think I would have been otherwise. But um, yeah, so I started to get, I got kidney stones and I was pregnant, actually very early pregnancy with my daughter. And um you know, and they ran in my family, you know, which we have, like, we could have a lot of conversations about that. But, um, you know, they wanted to do some kind of procedure on me. Um, and so I reached out to one of my aunts and I and through one of my cousins. Um, and I said, you know, can you ask her what she did for kidney stones? And she messaged me back, um, drink olive oil and fresh lemon juice. And I was like, what? the like you know i was i was like not down for that at all and i was like we really literally want me to drink salad dressing and that's going to get rid of kidney stones sure um and so i didn't and then like time went on and i had another pregnancy 
and I had kidney stones again. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to like look it up. And I actually had the internet at that time. And I found that a lot of people had benefit when they actually did this one-to-one -one ratio of lemon juice and olive oil. And I was like, okay, screw it. I'm doing it. And I had a big, I had several kidney stones that again, they thought they were going to want to intervene. And one of them was like in my ureter and they're like, there's no way that big kidney stone is going to go anywhere. And basically you're going to have to get a procedure. And I did my thing and I went back and they were gone. And so now if I ever, I rarely get any of that anymore because I understand more about my diet and oxalates and the microbiome and a lot of other things that have really helped me. Um, but, but I always go to my lemon juice and olive oil if I ever have an issue. And I was like, wow, that was kind of like my ancestors tapping me on the shoulder, you know, and being like, hey, this is your purpose. Um, this is your lineage. When are you going to uh, kind of uh, embrace that? And this was kind of where I was like, okay, fam, I'm listening now, you know? Yeah, when it worked and when, you know, it, and, and, and what's cool now with a lot of these, I, I don't know the science behind that one specifically, but a lot of these um, traditional or indigenous or quote alternative uh, treatments, I love how they use alternative as the word to describe the thing that's been around for like 3000 years, but um is that science has now started to explain some of them as to the why or the how they work. And so I'm sure there's something of the combination of fats with the acidity or some aspect of the citrus that like does something in the body that affects the kidneys, which breaks up the stones. And, um, and the why doesn't matter. Like the how doesn't really matter, but it's just fun to like see those things get validated as they often do. So um, so getting kidney stones was a good idea then. So good job. Good yeah. job on that. So let me say, actually, <laughs> I mean, first of all, the word alternative, right? That, that idea, we should just never imagine that that's ever an accident. Of course, it's very much right. Like we have a, there's a framework and there's a programming and we're, you know, we're in that soup all the time. So like all those terms are never accidental. they never just appeared. Um, but you know, that kind of takes me to actually how a lot of experiences like kidney stones are, I've had home births. Okay. So like hundred percent natural labor, um, with two of my kids and, um, and I've had kidney stones. So I feel like I have a pretty good, um, like sense of the pain scale, you know, as far as, uh, as far as that goes. And, um, so no one would really usually say, wow, what a gift those kidney stones were, you know what I mean? But, um, but that's really true of a lot of really difficult experiences. And I think like looking back, you know, I can see that it was a gift. Um, and, you know, a lot of my work has really become uh, centered around how do we extract our gifts from difficult initiatory experiences from the times we're in transformation in our lives that can feel literally like torture and because it's kind of scary because you don't know what the heck is going on and like how do we get into a conversation with the unknown and with mystery and uh learn how to navigate that and kind of then find how we can extract the gifts from it so um you know i've had many such experiences in my life um and many of us do right these kind of little either very challenging experiences or even almost death-like experiences, you know, where 
you know, like when I lost my father very suddenly as like a, you know, as an 11 year old, like that's like, there is a kind of death that happens when you lose someone that you love, for example, that you have to kind of go through the death and rebirth cycle. You know, how do we find the gifts in that um, so that we can, and our purpose, right? Like the kidney stones were like a cosmic breadcrumb that took me in the direction, led me to part of my purpose. Yeah. And I, that's been my experience with the most difficult periods of my life. They've always ushered in some sort of change that needed to happen or some new way that my life turned afterwards and were ended up being gifts. But if you'd have told me that when I was in the middle of it, I would have not wanted to hear it, but um, it's always been true. And you mentioned uh, your purpose there for uh, that, that those gaining clear clarity in those moments during those periods of our life can, can help us steer more towards intention and purpose. And like, what is all of this and why am I here and what am I doing? And a question I had intended on asking that kind of just walked right into is uh, what does it feel like to make decisions that don't honor our purpose? Like, is there a way to tell the decisions we're making and the actions we're taking, if they're in alignment with, with purpose and with who we are, uh, is there a way to be able to tell that physically or in a felt sense of some kind? Do we have some sort of little radar or barometer or something built in? Yeah, this whole thing, our bodies <laughs> and our, and our, um, you know, and our minds and our, just our state of being. So like, you know, in my, work as an MD, you know, so I do, I wear a lot of hats. Um, Like I, you know, I'm a teacher and director of an institute and I coach people through things like microdosing and do spiritual coaching and actually, you know, a certain amount of ancient astrology um, kind of on the side for fun. And, and I'm an MD. So in my MD work, part of what really like steered me into doing a lot of this more transformational support um, and guidance was um, because I saw so many people who were were sick, um, you know, with chronic illness, with autoimmune disease, with neurologic thing, you know, depression, the gamut, the gamut of things, um, and even more severe things, like even things like cancer, where um, there was a lot of like there had been a lot of suffering leading into um, the development of their condition, um, and a lot of what was going on was like there now it's not and i want to be clear it's not like people bring up bring upon themselves their conditions but that there's sort of a way in which like if you don't commit to your well-being and you don't commit to like what is being called of you and what's in alignment for you then you're living out of alignment and when you're living out of alignment there are all kinds of ways that you get notifications, okay, that you're living out of alignment. And some of those can be like challenging marriage or difficult relationships that you have or hating to go to work every day or um, feeling fatigued all the time. I went through a period of time before I went to, on my very first trip to Ecuador, where I I was saying to my then husband, I feel like I'm dying. And um, he's like, well, you're just tired, you know, you're like traveling, you're teaching everywhere, you're giving talks, you have this practice, you have three young kids doing, you know, you have this urban farm, you're, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, I know what tired feels like because I've been 
a resident with, you know, a fellow, a doctor with three small kids. Like, I know what that is. This is something else. And, you know, not everybody would describe it as feeling like they're dying, but there's like a feeling of, um, there's a feeling and it can be called a lot of different things, but it is reflective of this lack of alignment with your purpose. And, um, so the question then is like, how do we start to even be in conversation with ourselves about what is out of alignment? Because that, even that alone can feel um, scary, you know? But when we have physical symptoms or mental uh, health issues too, oftentimes that's what they really are. They're like, they're really notifications um, from our, our, our soul, you know? And uh, yeah, and thank you for that. And I, my experience has been along those lines as well. And that if the those little signals and the little taps are not listened to, they tend to get louder. And I'm trying to learn to listen more quietly, <laughs> like hear them before they get loud and to stay more attuned to that. And I think, uh, you know, one way that you teach people to do that and to work with that and to hear more clearly is with plants. And people, some people listening might be like, what? And uh, <laughs> what do you mean with plants? How do you listen to plants? And so, um, and others, you know, plant medicine and psychedelics are uh, incredibly popular now compared to what they used to be like you'd have told me 10 years ago that I would have to have concerns around like the commodification and capitalization of plant medicine and that things were going to become legal and people were going to be trying to make money off it and that was that was going to be the problem and not the prohibition and everything else I would have told you you were completely off your rocker so I'm I'm glad that that things are less taboo and more talked about now so people might have heard the term plant medicine but and, and then they think psychedelics or they think mushrooms or ayahuasca or whatever those things are. But um, the work that you do with plants and that you teach and that, you know, indigenous and traditional healers have taught forever uh, involves a lot more than just those special plants that everybody seems to have heard of now. So what are teacher or master plants? Is that every plant? Is it like, how does that work? What's the situation there? How do you learn from plants? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, the first thing I'll say is, you know, part of part of the way I've studied with plants and I learn from plants um, is that, you know, I go in uh, with the idea that plants, just like animals or water or, you know, trees or other things are that I have kinship with them. And what that means is that there's an aliveness in them and there's an aliveness in me and that that those two things um, resonate with one another. They entrain to one another. So um, when I go in, you know, with a sense of um, this is kin to me, you know, these plants are kin to me. That's part of where I go and learn from plants or I'm in relationship with plants. And that could be any plants that could be literally, you know, the oak tree, the dandelions, um, you know, the wild poke plant, the invasive, you know, all, all of the plants. Um, and as an herbalist, you know, I can tell you that actually invasive plants that we call weeds, for example, are some of the most medicinal plants. Like if I could have, you know, 
herbalists like to play this game of like, if I could have five plants on, you know, a desert island, like what would I bring or whatever? Like for me, dandelion is definitely one of those plants that I really I was going to bring that up when you mentioned it, that like our culture is like, literally there's a section of products at the store that you can buy that the intention of it is to kill the thing that grows in your grass that has immense health benefits. That's like yeah. our society in a nutshell, but go ahead. <laughs> Right. It is. I used to just be like, I can't, you know, in my book, in the dirt cure, I kind of wrote a little like, why are we poisoning like the very thing that's probably one of the most nourishing things that we can like, take from our yard and dandelion season just as like a little tip for everybody. I have a recipe on my website for making dandelion fritters, you can make them like with gluten or gluten free with eggs or vegan. It's super, super easy. And like we pound those, you know, I have to I have to prevent myself from picking all my dandelions because I want them to like replenish each year. So like, and I'm, I'm that crazy person in my neighborhood who's like thrilled when I see like my lawn covered with dandelions, whereas other people obviously want their lawns pristine and like very green. And they look at me like, you know, you know, the crazy plant lady. I um, do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So to get to the idea of like, so what plants are teacher plants or master plants? So on the one hand, you know, all of these plants, have wisdom and the wisdom is is like they each have their own lineage right like so the oak tree and the medicine of the oak tree and the lessons of the oak tree are like strength and groundedness and all these things like part of that medicine is like um you know when you look at an oak tree for example and i do these kinds of exercises with my students um and clients like when you look at an oak tree you feel like the energy of that oak tree like there's a part of you that then feels really rooted and really strong um, and really like kind of able to kind of reach for the heavens like there are these kinds of medicines that you get simply by looking at it or if you hear like an owl hooting i'm just going to give that example because i get really excited i hear owls i live in new york city but in a very green little corner of new york city and i get to hear owls sometimes and like we run outside and listen to the owls and there's like something of that vibration and of the owl that like you know kind of you 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 know it's a medicine right the sound of that owl is just it's so it brings awe it brings wonder it brings reverence it brings uh, peacefulness it brings you know sort of all the all these different feelings that come with hearing the wild world um, and then master plants or teacher plants in a more strict point of view are things that might change the way you um, you know, the way your mind operates, um, like mood and kind of your neurochemistry and are, you know, kind of have this potent energy. So an example of a master plant could be cacao. An example of a master plant is coffee, right? So these are plant tonics. Uh, kava could be a master plant. Um, psychedelic plants get a lot of play in a sense, especially right now, because they're very, they can be very loud. Um, in the way that they speak to us. So we don't have to listen very hard to hear them speaking to us if we're taking them in a, you know, sort of macro dose. Um, but micro dosing is an example also of like ways to kind of learn to listen to, uh, you know, the messages of the plants. And, you know, what you'll hear, and I heard it many times when I was recording my summit, um, is people will say, the plants told me, or the plants guided me to, like, Nobody was like, oh, you know, I know this is going to sound weird, but it was just, this is how, this is my relationship with these plants is like the mushrooms guided me to think about this or the mushrooms want me to do this. And like, it's so universal that people who engage with certain kinds of 
plant medicines feel that sense of another consciousness, another entity as like, you know, t literally being a guide or a teacher. Absolutely. I'll vouch for that 100%. And uh, it feels good to talk about those things openly now anyway. But um, I, and it's cool that the language has shifted around it from this may sound weird to the plants told me. Uh, we were, I was, again, just talking about this in the last podcast episode I recorded, which is one with Sean Merrick. If anybody wants to look that up, he's a psychotherapist. It's also trained in functional health stuff and he's done plant medicine work. And he, he works with ketamine in his practice because he can, because it's the only thing right now that's like above board when it comes to uh, consciousness altering substances that are used in therapy. And we talked about how different ketamine is than the plants because ketamine well, it's an effective medicine for therapy. It's, it's dissociative in some ways that pulls you out of your stories and your loops and your things, but it doesn't have that. It's missing the that. Like it, it doesn't, no one ever leaves ketamine therapy and is like, the ketamine told me this. And it's very clear that it's not a plant. And we, we talked about like the difference between the experiences of like ketamine versus mushrooms versus whatever, and that there's no like you mentioned consciousness that, that it's not um it's just different and it's it's because it's man-made and it's not something that gathered is gathered out in the in nature and wasn't given to us for that so just interesting and I'm, I'm glad that the language is switching about it and that it's so casually said that it doesn't need to be prefaced or um explained away or whatever and that we can just talk about it like people have probably talked about it for like 99.9 percent .9 of the time there was people mm -hmm. Like the idea that plants can communicate in ways that aren't with words with humans and vice versa was, I think, pretty well accepted until like the European culture became the dominant one around the world. And even probably the traditional European populations. Uh, so I guess it would start like, I don't know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that became weird. No, I would say probably more like around the time of the European witch hunts, you know, which is... yeah. Big part of like, actually, I think, you know, very pivotal. Like post-Renaissance. Um, yeah, like the age of the, the age of enlightenment. Yeah, and reason. <laughs> we, we, we were enlightened enough to decide that humans were superior to all other things and that we didn't have to like be concerned with the cycles of like the seasons or nature or sacred events or, you know, and so on. And, um, you know, a lot of that wisdom was under attack, right? At that time, for example... You know, not only did they have sort of these witch hunts, which were really going after older, uh, anyone who was sort of more like women on the margins, especially, even though it kind of encompassed a lot of women. It was like, are you a single woman? Are you an older woman? Are you a wise woman? Are you a midwife? Are you somebody who's kind of in a more empowered state? Um, but at the same time, it was also at the beginning of kind of um, like a big push of colonization and slavery. And it was sort of the... Um, you know, what was happening in, in Africa, um, the kind of whole enslavement um, uh, sort of cycle there, and then also kind of the invasion of the Americas, right? And that was like really attacking a lot of the indigenous people of Europe, and then the indigenous people of Africa, and then the indigenous people of the Americas. So um, that's when I think, you know, the whole idea of the aliveness of all beings um, you know, became um, taboo. And, and, and people had been destroyed, literally destroyed, enslaved, killed, 
you know, the gamut. So it's pretty terrifying. And I think that's part of why we all feel, those of us who speak about this, feel like we're kind of coming out from underground, but we feel very cautious, you know, many of us feel very cautious still um, in some of the ways that we might talk about it or teach about it or so on, because um, it's in our epigenetics, you know, that you get destroyed uh, for, for talking about this. I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit that's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations if you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast. A gift from our team over at Rebel Health Tribe, producers of this show. And now, back to your episode. I kind of want to talk about like the psychedelic plants that are used in various cultures. Now, not all indigenous or native or traditional cultures use psychedelic plants um, as medicine, but almost all of them, I actually have not encountered one that breaks the rule, but I'm sure it exists, has some sort of practice that shifts a state of consciousness that might be similar to psychedelics, whether it's like a, a sweat lodge or a vision quest or probably various forms of breathing or breath work. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think that that's like, I, it may, I, I could be wrong. I, I don't know if it's universal, but um, I think it's pretty universal. And I'm curious as to why you think that is and what experiences may mimic, you know, similar to psychedelic plant experiences. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there are countless indigenous communities. We couldn't even possibly, yeah. you know, generalize, but, um, <clears throat> you know, I would say that, you know, things like psychedelic mushrooms, you know, like psilocybe mushrooms or even cannabis, which is, not technically, you know, a psychedelic, but was used as a sacred plant, we think, um, based on like literally drawings on temples, you know, ancient temples, um, you know, and, and some people who know a lot more about that than I do, you know, talk about it in the summit. But, um, you know, I do think that, that indigenous peoples, you know, tend to have actually uh, transformational experiences around uh, psychedelic plants of various kinds. Like people actually think, for example, like scholars think that, you know, the Oracle of Delphi had, you know, this, she, she was in this uh, cave where there was sort of smoke coming up from this crevice. And like, it's thought that she got her visions through breathing in um, some kind of, you know, psychedelic transformational herb. Um, people think that it's possible that part of why the cow is sacred in Hinduism is because, um, you know, psychedelic mushrooms grow in cow patties. And so like, that was like, there's a sacred medicine that they were able to um, retrieve from the cow. So these are all theoretical and there's many more, you know, about like Moses and, you know, lots of stories. But, um, but I think what we know is that in that many indigenous peoples um, definitely had that. And if they didn't, or even if they did, there were also other forms of initiatory experiences for sure. Um, you know, we know that deep meditation has similar um, neurological 
mechanisms um, and outcomes as psychedelics. You know, you're shutting down what's called the default mode network and the default mode network is part of your your me network, right? It's like what kind of makes, it's sort of what um, upholds all of the narratives and stories that you've, uh, that you operate, you know, according to. And, um, you know, and we use a lot of predictive coding, it's called, um, that the default mode network, this constellation of structures in the brain that work together, um, you know, is in charge of. Predictive coding is when I come to a new situation, I don't, I don't take in every single detail um, fresh from that situation. I take in a few details and I fill in the rest of the details with previous experiences. And what that does is it enhances my, you know, capacity for survival because I don't have to take as much time to assess a situation. Um, but on the other side of it, it means that you are really living in the past in a certain way, right? Because you're only taking certain details from new situations. So what if you had a really like traumatic past where there was a lot of danger all the time, and then you go into experiences where there's no danger and you see danger, um, but there isn't danger and that's gonna change how you operate. And then you're gonna be like, wow, why do people act this way around me and think there's something wrong with me? Because you can't see that like you're kind of projecting danger onto situations where there, where there may be none. Um, that's just, you know, obviously an example. So the idea is that psychedelics can, can shut down temporarily the default mode network to allow some ability to actually have a, a relationship with your old memories and old stories that you compartmentalize or suppress and B, um, you know, allow you to kind of shut down predictive coding so that you can see a new experience um, as a, as what it is more so, right? Which gets us into a very hairy conversation about reality that I don't know that we want to get into today, but... Different um, podcast. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but so there are other things besides, you know, psychedelics that can shut down default mode network, breath work, you know, certain kinds of breath work, yes, can do that. Um, deep, regular meditation can do that. Um, uh, situations of extreme awe, near-death experiences, extreme sports, um, all can do that. And um, even like isolation chambers, you know, can do that. So there's, there's actually a good number of ways to access some of those benefits um, and that kind of transformational experience and being able to kind of see through who you usually are um, sort of more to what's possible for you. All of those things are, are available without psychedelics. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Most cultures, um, and most, well, most indigenous cultures have some form of that or many forms of that. And the reason why is because it's really important for healing your community. You don't want your community to be holding all this, uh, trauma and kind of painful, experiences in your lineage. You want to cleanse that so that you can move forward and be like a healthy community. And, you know, in in most um, indigenous communities that work with these medicines that I know about, um, very much believe that they're only as healthy as the sickest person, um, you know, in their community, right? So here in our country, in the U.S., for example, you know, addiction is... Uh, you know, a massive, massive 
problem. It's sort of its own pandemic in a sense, um, and probably worse now. And um, you know, there are medicines, for example, iboga, um, which has its pitfalls and kind of potential dangers, but you know, is effective in one dose for um, reversing like severe addiction to things like heroin, like really, really difficult things to break addiction. Yeah, I have friends who work with it and it was always like, even to me, someone, I have quite a bit of psychedelic experience and I'm pretty open-minded and nothing kind of freaks me out and I'm not scared of substances or plants or whatever. And Iboga was always the one that was like, okay, I'm never going to take that one because of stories I heard about it and, and things that I heard about the difficult process that it puts people through and that it's like physically dangerous for a lot of people and all these stories. And then I met two women who work with Iboga closely with addicts and it saved both of their lives according, like they will say that. And one of them was opiates and one of them was alcohol. And uh, for people who scoff at hearing alcohol mixed in with opiates and heroin, um, it should be for some people. Like uh, somebody deep into alcoholism is, is it's not any easier to get out of there than it is to get out of any of the other ones. And um, both of them were so profoundly impacted by their experience with it that now they work exclusively with Iboga and then the preparatory and the integration and the nutrition and the lifestyle around it and, and doing, cause it's not like throw somebody into a plant ceremony of some kind. And then they come out and they're this like perfect shiny object that doesn't need any more work or any more help or any more things. That's often the start of someone's process, but they've really changed my perception on Iboga and like opened my eyes to it. And um, I still, don't really feel drawn to an experience with it myself, but I'm no longer scared of it. And I no longer um, have a judgment towards it. Like I used to be like, Oh, that's probably more harm than good. And they said, when you see like a 90% recovery rate with opiate and heroin addicts, um, more harm than good becomes relative. And um that they, they do EKG testing, they do blood testing, they do different kinds of tests, and they'll turn people away who have certain heart issues and things. But anybody out there listening doesn't know anything about Iboga, or you have heard about it, and it's like this boogeyman, um, it's not. <laughs> and well, there's, there's powerful work being done. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I totally agree with that. And I would say, you know, that's like a really important point that you bring up around teacher plants um, in general, whether they're psychedelic or otherwise, but certainly, you know, the psychedelics, I mean, they're, they're not just, they're not just like um, necessarily here for rec for a recreational enjoyment. They're not like a smorgasbord of like, I'm going to try what I want sort of thing. And I think a lot of people. That's um, where I was when I first heard about it. And I was like, that one doesn't sound very fun. Right. Right. So this is, Right, like these are serious, these are all really serious medicines. And, and um, does that mean they're, they should be medicalized? Not necessarily, but um, nor does it mean that like we, we should be just kind of thinking, well, how will this be a good thing? Will I like it kind of thing? Because the experience of psychedelics are not necessarily fun, are not necessarily easy. Um, you know, certainly some of them can be, 
uh, very like enlightening or even, you know, ecstatic experiences for some people, but for many people, they're not. I mean, I'm not going to try to like think of percentages. Are they profound experiences? Almost always. Are some of them, you know, really difficult, really difficult? Yes. Um, and, and, uh, so yeah, like I, I appreciate that you said, well, this isn't for me. And I like, I hope that, you know, part of what my work is, is to give people that sense of like reverence and awe and uh, like uh, cultivating intimacy, right? With these plants before just kind of diving in and saying, what can you do for me? And saying like, how can I show up in a good way, both before, during and after, and do my part in this process to like become more uh, aligned with my purpose and become a better human and contribute to you know the well-being of all living beings um right because that's part of what their job is for us and we have to kind of show up and do our part and not just think you know is this going to be a good high for me or am i going to like have some like you know learn some truth about you know my past. I mean, not to say that there's not room for that, but, you know, coming into it, it's not just like a recreational drug alone. Uh, admittedly, my introduction to most psychedelics and plants was recreational. And it was like, uh, it was, this is fun. This is interesting. This is cool. I'll do this uh, type of thing. And then now, I mean, I haven't used them in that way for 15 years. It's, it's much different now, but, um, I think that, uh, yeah, that's just a good point to make. And the last question I get asked all the time about now that I want to throw past somebody who can be more qualified to answer it than I am is um, microdosing is now all the rage in certain circles. And um, there's some, to my knowledge, there's some research that's been started and studies to start to look at it. Um, but it's difficult because the substances are um, highly illegal most of the time. So running studies on certain things, it's a lot of hoops to jump through. But um, the people are listening have probably heard the term microdosing. They may not know exactly what that means. Um, so maybe we could give it a little definition of what microdose means and then... Um, which which things are being used in that way and like what might someone see from that and then we can let you go celebrate finishing your summit <laughs> um so i'm passionate about microdosing actually i think it's um in general i think i think it's a, a beautiful way of starting this conversation um with the plants and with yourself and um kind of connecting to to the bigness um you know, of kind of the mind of the universe as, as one of my uh, interviewees, you know, that's one of his ways of thinking about it. So um, I, I do love microdosing. Microdosing means essentially that you might be taking um, one of these medicines or, or any, or any medicine doesn't have, you know, doesn't have to be specifically like a plant medicine. But in this case, we're talking about plant medicines in a dose that is less than one that would give you uh, really perceptible psychedelic experience and the way that we think about, you know, altered sense of reality or visions or, you know, hallucinations or any of that kind of thing. Um, so the idea is you can kind of do 
your daily life, you know, get in your car, you know, take walks, go to the grocery store, anything that you might want to do. Um, you should not be, you know, altered in any way and unable to kind of do your life. Some people might choose to focus on certain things if they decided to microdose. And there's a lot of ways to microdose. And there's a lot of kinds of medicines you could microdose with. So, you know, there are people who do that with LSD, microdoses of LSD, who, you know, there's someone who wrote a whole book about her experience with intractable, you know, depression bipolar, I think, and found that this was transformative. Um, but, you know, it could be, you know, psilocybin mushrooms, it could be uh, ayahuasca even, it could be, right? I mean, in other words, there's a lot of ways to work with microdosing. I don't think we know even the beginnings yet. Um, and then I teach a whole class about microdosing and coach people through microdosing. And um, the idea is really that there are, you know, kind of these microdoses, then there are like um, medicinal doses, and then there are shamanic doses, right? So like, it's actually built into even, um, you know, the traditional use of them. Um, and this I, I was going to ask that. I've never known that. I've never even thought to think that or wonder that before. I've always just assumed microdosing was like a creation of our culture. Um, so th a lot of these plants, the psychedelic ones and the non-psychedelic ones, uh, they have th traditionally been used in various doses. It's not like the cultures that use mushrooms always eat handfuls of mushrooms when they eat mushrooms. It's uh, interesting. Yeah. I'll even say, you know, with my teachers, um, they're, you know, my indigenous teachers um, and my first experiences with certain kinds of um, psychedelic medicines, um, they, you know, they, um, their culture and their tradition was to use very tiny doses compared to like, you know, so like the Ecuadorian approach to, let's say, ayahuasca or San Pedro is is totally different than like the peruvian or the brazilian um you know and again i'm talking you know i don't want to i don't want to make it sound like there's like uh you know ecuador has one indigenous community right it's it's like you know thousands but um with the people that taught me um they thought it was like disgusting to hear that people took big doses of uh, you know, the, the ayahuasca brew, they were like, why would people do that? You don't need that, you know? So, um, so it does vary. Um, and it's, and it can be very potent. And that's what I think is so exciting is, you know, we tend to think that if something doesn't have like fireworks and cannonballs, or if it doesn't really, really, really hurt and cause us suffering or like, right. So we have to have some kind of heroic experience, um, that it's not going to help us. Right. And, and, um, it's just not true. Like it's very possible to get a lot of benefit, transformation, um, growth, and healing from microdosing. And we actually are learning that um, you know there are a few studies um, and a lot of other ones where they've actually gone into Reddit forums and you know. And I and again, I present on all of this stuff and teach on all of it. But um, it looks like it can be helpful for cluster headaches, for uh, migraines, for chronic pain. Um, and even like Paul Stamets right now is uh, involved in a, in a big study in California where they're looking at lion's mane mycelium, uh, niacin, and microdose of psilocybin to actually reverse dementia. So, yeah. yeah. 
I was at one of his first presentations where he threw that stack out and uh, talked about what the neuroregenerative potential of that combination could be. And I think that was almost three years ago. And um, it was one of the first times he like openly talked about some of those things because P- Paul tried to be a you know clean academic for a long time and didn't want to tarnish his reputation as an expert on, on mushrooms by sharing all of his um, psilocybin related research. And um, I couldn't believe some of the things he shared both about lion's mane mushrooms and about the neuroregenerative properties of psilocybin. And um, it's just exciting. It's exciting to see the taboo removed from some of these things on the scale and the speed at which it has been. Now, of course, that comes with pitfalls. Like I, I mentioned earlier, the the dude bros are going to try to capitalize on everything and try to commodify it and make money off of it. But there's a generation being raised right now that's not growing up with the same propaganda uh, and the same stigmas and the same taboos around some of these things that like we did. I mean, I don't know. I heard stories in high school, like, Oh my God, if you take that, you're going to, this is going to happen to you or this thing's going to like, or, you know, you're going to, jump off a bridge or it's going to be in your spinal column forever. And like all this like taboo, I used to think like there was a military recruiter when I was in high school, cause I didn't go to a private school. So the army tried to recruit us and um, uh, they came in and it was the people that were recruiting um, pilots, like Top Gun style, like not Top Gun pilots, but you know, the pilots that fly the fast planes. I was like, dude, I want to do that. I'll talk to that guy. And I went and, but there was a, a legend around our high school that if you ever took LSD, that it forever lived in your spinal column or spinal fluid or whatever. And that that job specifically in the military, just that one, fighter pilots get spinal tap tested for LSD use and that they can always test it forever. And we totally believed it. Like we thought that was for sure a thing that LSD and we had taken LSD. So we're forever tainted. And if you take like five hits of LSD, you're like clinically insane for the rest of your life. We thought that too. So we thought we were all on the brink of like psychotic lifelong madness and that we could have our spinal fluid tapped by the guy at the school trying to get us to be pilots. And I was the only one who had the guts to like spill the beans to him that this was our fear. And this is why we wouldn't try to sign up to be a pilot. And he's like, well, admitting illicit drug use is a red flag. So, no, you can't be a pilot. But nobody was going to stick a needle in your spine. And I don't think that's true, kid. I don't think it stays in there like that. I was like, what? I I also, I remember hearing those same. Yeah, and we grew up many miles away. Like, I was in the Chicago area. You're in New York. And um, these urban, but it's the we all know where a lot of that propaganda came from and um, it's exciting to see like my son is around the age of uh, at least one or two of your kids. Cause he's like late college age and um, they don't understand what the big deal is. Right. Like it's not, it's not a big deal around plant medicines and psychedelics. It's just like a, a thing that people do. And um, I'm encouraged by that because we need some lessons from plants now. So 
Um, before we go, I just want to give you an opportunity. We're going to have the underneath this video or on the show notes, whoever's listening to this, when this goes live, there will be a button to click down there that takes them to sign up for your event. And um, you're probably sick of talking about it by now because you've been immersed in it for like weeks or months. So um, just share a little bit about what it is and why they might want to check it out and what they'll learn. And then we'll let you go celebrate. Yeah, I'm not at all sick of talking about it, believe it or not. Um, okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, I you know I interviewed um, over 40 different experts, artists, um, healers, and um, people who have uh, transformed uh, with psychedelics or medicinal mushrooms. They de I decided to put those guys together. They're not quite the same, but they're both awesome. Um, and, By medicinal uh, mushrooms, you're referencing mushrooms like like lion's mane. Yeah, cool. So, um, both of those, and part of why I kind of put them together is both of those are banned hashtags. Like these are like all the things that are kind of forbidden to us, but like have this tremendous healing. And so, I was lucky enough to have you and some wonderful people you connected me to, and um, you know, one of the one of the lead researchers um, of the psychedelics program at Johns Hopkins that's gotten like a lot, a lot, a lot of the um, press on their things on eating disorders and PTSD and OCD and dementia and depression um, and NYU that they do this um, amazing research on uh, psychedelics for existential suffering and fear of death and for mm -hmm. people who have actually, you know, it's mushrooms, right? With psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so some amazing, amazing scientists that just absolutely blew my mind. And um, and then healers and people who work with these medicines and indigenous people um, who uh, are talking about things like San Pedro and Ayahuasca, giving their perspective on um, kind of the evolution of psychedelics as it, as it stands right now. Um, yeah, so it was just an incredible, incredible experience and so much education um, that's there. And I think like just as with um, these medicines, like you come and you find what calls you, you know, and, and dive in and, um, you know, even listening to one of them might be something that really changes your perspective. I mean, there's just so much incredible wisdom. I'm so jealous you got to do all those interviews. Like I kind of wish I was a fly on the wall for a lot of those like that. Um, which you can be, everybody can go be a fly on the wall. That's the point. But like, um, yeah. And I feel I'm, I'm grateful that you invited me to be part of it. I'm Every time I openly share about my experience with plant medicine and psychedelics, it feels authentic. And there's something about that that feels good because I, I didn't talk about it for a long time and not publicly. And um, I feel woefully unqualified compared to some of the people that you have involved in the summit. But I know you were looking for experiences as well as education and information and research. But um uh, just to be part of something that features some of the people that you have involved with this is is really cool. It's like uh, getting to the NBA. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I definitely had a lot of fangirl moments. And yeah, so I was looking at the list and I'm like, oh, man, that's crazy. I can't imagine interviewing that person. Um, it'd be really fun. And so I'm a little jealous and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I highly encourage everybody to check it out. And then uh, that link will be below. It'll be very clear what's what. And then also 
Um, you've mentioned, you know, you teach classes, you teach groups, you have an incredible certification program. Where would people's first stop be if they want to go check out not the summit, but your work and your workshops and, and your offerings? Where do they go for that? And what do they find there? Um, yeah, they can go to my website at drmaya.com, D-R-M-A-Y-A.com. Um, and if you want to see my psychedelics uh, intensive training, um, program where we go through all like really the latest up to date all the time science and kind of the sacred um, components and how to become a sitter and how to incorporate it into your, you know, practice if you're a clinician. Um, they can go to just drmaya.com slash psychedelics. Um, and if they want to see my certification, they can go to drmaya.com slash certification. I love when people use simple URLs. <laughs> I want to say one quick thing because sure. what you said about when you talk about psychedelics, how it made you, um, it feels authentic to you and it feels good to you. Uh, that's part of the process, whether it's through psychedelics or other kinds of rituals or approaches, that's sort of my mission um, is to have people feeling like that you know psychedelics do that for people in many cases and it makes me so happy to hear that you feel that sense of right it's really connecting with your your truth and your purpose and your sense of aliveness and it's i think instigated so many incredible projects and collaborations for you so um yeah so i feel like you're actually a beautiful kind of uh example your story is really an inspiring example of, of the way that transformation can, can work. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening, and please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guests and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations and you can be started in only a few minutes. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating, review, or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases.